giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with Derek Reimer. Hey, Derek. Hey, Ben. So how are you this week? I'm doing well. How are you, Ben? I am good. It's Friday. Yep. I'm highly caffeinated. <laughs> Me as I'm, well. Uh, I'm feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you drink coffee before we podcast? I do. Yeah. Coffee's a morning ritual for me. Uh, yeah. Have you gotten into coffee snobbery? Um, I'd say I'm, I'm firmly into coffee snobbery. Um, okay. I got my home espresso machine set up and um, it's getting pretty intense. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's one of those things where you could dive deep if you want to. Yeah. Actually, I heard you talking about this on your your account details uh, webinar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for for correctly calling it a webinar. I appreciate that. Your your attention to detail. Yeah, as you were talking about the uh, the hipster barista behind the counter carefully uh-huh. tamping your grinds. That's uh-huh. totally me with my machine. But I swear, oh, yeah. I swear, it makes a difference on the taste <laughs> when properly tamped and pre infused. You might be right. Yeah. But I, I think the world needs more double-blind testing of these kind of things. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. I think it was Basecamp did a nice blog post uh, video, basically, where they like they had like really fancy coffee in the office and like really cheap coffee in the office. Yeah. And they, they just had people test it. And like the consensus seemed to be like, no one could tell. Yeah. I, or it was, it was close enough to random that it was like, yeah, there's no yeah. clear trend here. Yeah. I think we do have a lot of biases built in. I have a friend who's adamant that box wine is no different than an expensive bottle of wine from a from a boutique yeah. winery, um, mm-hmm. which I, I think the experiments bear that out as well. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. I feel confident if I, if it wasn't a blind test for me, I'd be able to tell the difference, but if it's blind test, I don't know, probably can't. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, then the thing is with, with taste is like, if you think it tastes better then yeah, you're right. You know, if you if you're like, these beans are so amazing and it was tamped so perfectly, like you can convince yourself it tastes better right. and it will improve your, your subjective experience. Yeah. Perhaps me so, even telling fine. you that if I, if I told you all the things I did to it, it would probably taste yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'd buy it. Yep. Cool. So, um, products work. Yeah. SaaS. Yeah. Revenue. All the business, things. Programming. <laughs> What's new in your world? What is new in my world? Well, a smattering of things. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a doing a bunch of things kind of weak. I don't know if I mentioned this before, running a uh, trial, A-B test on the, the form keep trial length because mm-hmm. we picked 14 days kind of out of the air at one point. And so now it's like, but the reality is that people that have success with it generally do very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's a very quick setup process for most people. And so it's like, do you really need 14 days? Like when, if, you're, if you get in the first 12 minutes, you have a form wired up. It's like, do you really need that much time? Right. I guess I've never seen a 12-minute trial before, but maybe it's maybe it's doable. <laughs> That's actually a really interesting idea. Like have a timer ticking down when someone signs up. Like you have 45 minutes to cancel before being charged. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, I can't tell if that's awesome or horrifying. Maybe both. <laughs> Probably a little bit. But so we're doing, uh, there's a, we have an A-B test running between the 14-day and the five-day. Uh-huh. And so far, I mean... It, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm reporting this not. There's, there's no significance yet, so this doesn't matter. But so far, the five day is winning. So ah, nice in conversion rates. But that means nothing because there's no statistical significance. So yeah, I, I imagine time pressure might help a little bit in that situation, and mm. that might be a good time pressure. You know, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's an in- interesting point because I had my my concern was that not that people needed 14 days, but that the 14 days helps conversion because they're like, oh, I'll have plenty of time to check this out. Mm-hmm. But you could be right that it could hurt activation because they're like, well, I could always come back to this. Yeah, and then probably would not come back to it. Right, right. Yeah. And then another thing I did on Formkeep was to add um, a really short like kind of uh, onboarding survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like after you have signed up and entered a credit card, I have just like two quick fields that show up. It's like, how did you hear about us and 
what's your goal? What are you, what are you hoping to use FormKey for? Mm-hmm. And even just a couple submissions that I've gotten since I deployed this have been great. It's really useful. I've had trouble getting a sense of where people are coming from. So few people have like a UTM parameter. Um, and right. sometimes a lot of the times it refers not set either. And so it's like, I don't know, like, what's our best channel? Not even totally sure. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also we have like, we're getting a quite a variety of people signing up. I would have expected it would be 95% developers, but we're getting like non-developers, even like, even though we, I think we're fairly clear about this on the landing page and whatnot, we're getting like still non-technical people that have different, you know, goals. And so I'm trying to just get a sense of what are the buckets and where are they coming from? Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. We did something similar with Drip. Um, trying to think how long ago it was, probably over a year, we added a, a referral source field. So just a question of like, where did you hear about Drip? Or I can't remember the exact question. It's right on our sign-up form. But um, yep. we were leery about doing that because the whole theory of like every additional field you add to your sign-up form potentially harms conversions. And maybe we could have added it after you sign up. But yeah, it, only a percentage of people obviously fill out the field. But I think we, mm. as soon as we did it, we started like finding insights that weren't necessarily visible in Google Analytics. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting more of those. And um, another thing is like now that I have a, so I have an email that gets fired off when I get one of those things, which means I now have like a direct visibility into new trials, mm-hmm. which is kind of like hammering home, like we need more trials. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm getting some data here, but like we, we need more people coming through this funnel. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a nice uh, bit of awareness. Yeah. Uh, and then I've also been work, uh, working on some upcase stuff, um, finishing up, fulfilling all those uh, things. Like the teams were a little tricky to get going in some mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm basically fulfilled all of our people that have purchased, which is good. Okay. So that, that uh, effort is wrapping up, which is nice. How are the uh, How are the final results looking? I think the final results are somewhere around 117,000. Nice. Uh, yeah. I had an interesting thing where I emailed a bunch of people that hadn't bought. Actually, I emailed everyone that hadn't bought mm-hmm. and asked them, you know, what, what was the big thing? And by the way, I don't actually recommend emailing 3,000 people. <laughs> Um, and having replies go and to your email. response, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and asking them a question because, wow, I'm still getting responses. And like I sent that email like weeks ago and people are like, oh, like, let me, I guess I'll respond to Ben's email now. It's like, <laughs> you don't have to do this anymore. Oh, joy. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was like hundreds of responses, mm-hmm. which was kind of overwhelming. But very common response was basically just price. Hmm. And we intentionally kept the price point pretty high. So the cheapest thing was 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. And just for a lot of individual people, that was just too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've kicked around the idea of doing a kind of like a follow-on for those people sale of like maybe six months, mm-hmm. uh, like a shorter time period, like still package it up, um, but make the deal a little less good so that we're not like like penalizing people that are that bought during the normal sale. Sure. And I'm not sure if we're going to do that or not. I'm just kind of thinking about it. Yeah. Part of me thinks that kind of like cheapens it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not sure if I want to go down that path. Mm-hmm. It's a pricing optimization problem. You want to maximize revenue, but you also don't want to give away the farm. So, how do you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, like, I, I'm so we had this like list of thousands of people that basically said it's just too expensive right now, and so it's like there's a kind of obvious market, I guess. They were like interested enough to hear about it and to respond to my email about why they hadn't bought it. And most people said like, I like what you do, I like what Avi does. I just don't have four hundred bucks. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, like we could just find a way to serve this market. I think. Mm-hmm. 
I like that. Like back when I was running CodeTree, I would get pricing objections sometimes. And generally what I would try to do is find a way to keep the price essentially the same, but just scale back. Like, well, I can knock off a few user licenses for this and charge you 29 instead of 49. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times that worked. I can't say it worked a ton of times, but just basically keeping the rate the same, but reducing the scope like you're talking about. Yeah. So something I have found though, and I think we've we've had this talk before, is people will email me being like, hey, it's too expensive. And I'll be like, all right, fine. How much discount do you need? And they yeah. never respond. Or I'll be like, okay, here's a discount. And they're like, fine, but I'm not going to sign up anyway. Yeah. And so it's like maybe if you get an email from me saying, hey, why didn't you sign up? And you say price. And I'm like, okay, it's cheaper now. You're like, yeah, but still, I don't know. Uh-huh. Do I really want to pull out my credit card? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, it's like, here's a deal, and it expires in 12 minutes, and so take it or leave it. (laughs) Right, exactly. Here's a counter. Yeah. Need more counters and things. Mm -hmm. Faked prime pressure. Yeah. So that may may or may not happen. I'm I'm just deciding on that. Cool. And also, I'm working on, probably, it looks like we're going to license a bit of content for Upcase. Hmm. I won't say who quite yet, but Mm -hmm. uh, there's someone that makes good stuff, and I talked to him, and he's interested, so... We might be putting somebody else's content on Upcase, which is kind of nice because it's good and it's done and we have money and we can just give it to people. Yeah, that's nice. What's like the new content production strategy look like right now for Upcase? Like, is there continually new courses added or? We have, uh, no. Uh, I would say the strategy is to mostly not do a very good job of releasing new courses. Oh, well, I mean, you do have like a large repository of existing content, though. So that's... There is a lot of stuff, and some of them are being updated right now Mm -hmm. because they do need updates. But our new content pipeline has been bad. Got it. Uh, And so, and as a content product, that's kind of a thing Mm. that you need to fix. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's a big question mark for me is what are we doing about this? Right. It's hard to find anybody at ThoughtBot that wants to do it, mm. at least in the, with the constraints that we've had so far, which is that we don't want someone to do it full time right now. Right. Um, so like finding someone to do like a part time content management thing is pretty tricky. Yeah. Uh, because people generally, I think they work here because they want to write code and do code like things mm-hmm. and asking them to do teaching is a very different thing. Mm hmm. So this has been, I would say this is actually the biggest problem of Upcase is that it is an educational product and we charge monthly. And so you want to deliver new stuff continuously so people can justify the monthly payment. And it's hard to produce new content and it's hard to find people to do it. Yeah. Like even when when we've successfully corralled people into saying like, can I get you to make a course on SaaS fundamentals? Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of pushing and project management to get a course out the door. Hmm. Do you think that's a position that you would ever hire for, like just a content manager? So it's it's less even like, well, yes, I guess so. I think that actually may be our ultimate place we have to go, yeah. is that it's going to have to be someone's like thing. I don't really want that position either. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> if I don't want to do it and no one else seems to want to do it and we need to do it, like it's got to, like there's, there's an answer to this thing which and you throw money at it, I guess. Yeah. And maybe it's like that person is just kind of like the one who kind of pulls it together and maybe works with ThoughtBot employees who want to share knowledge about something, but they don't mm-hmm. want to do the full, like do all the work themselves. They're just kind of providing the deep knowledge and then the, you know, the content manager is kind of just pulling together all the production of it and all the quote unquote hard work that it probably would be the friction for a, a developer type who doesn't want to do all the, you know, production. So. Yeah, I feel the lack of that position on yeah. our case. Yeah, it's important, and, and I think we got to figure that one out. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing that I spent some time on this week was actually working on my microconf talk. Ah, I might not have mentioned this actually public on the podcast, but I'm speaking at microconf. Woohoo! Starter edition, uh, which is the like your I guess pre-launch uh, or pre-revenue maybe or mm-hmm. whatever. And so 
it's interesting. I started off thinking like, okay, I'm probably going to talk about pricing and marketing and sales a little bit and a couple of like product management and onboarding. And I was like, wait a minute. I started like <laughs> writing notes and I have like two pages of notes just on pricing. Uh-huh. And you're probably not surprised. And I think this will surprise no one that like this is like my favorite drum to beat. Yep. And I was realizing like if I got up on stage and like could get everyone's attention and just said like charge more than you're comfortable with mm-hmm. and then walked off the stage, that wouldn't be like... That might be almost enough. <laughs> Probably. You know? It's going to be one of those things where I think I can like make a statement like that and then spend 30 minutes trying to like really hammer it home with stories and graphs and yeah. case studies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if I could have only one like impact on that audience that's like getting ready to launch a thing, is like just you almost certainly are not going to charge enough at, at first. Yep. As a, as a person new to this, as a develop, like especially developers that tend to like look at it and think like, how hard was this code to write? Therefore, I should charge this much. Mm-hmm. I think if I could do only one service for the audience, it might be that. That might be the best one. Yeah, and it's such a painful mistake to make early on when you're brand new because you're kind of launching your product to the world. And if you're setting low pricing expectations, it can be hard to go up, right? I mean, yep. it's easier to go down, adjust down if you need to potentially. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, saying like this product is worth $10 a month. And then when you really should have been charging 99, uh, it would be yeah. really, really painful to try to go that direction. So I think it's just you're hamstrung too. If you like trying to build like a SaaS business on like $9 a month subscriptions. Yeah. Even if you're doing everything else right, I think you're still going to struggle. It's very likely the difference between failing and potentially succeeding and letting it replace your day job or whatever the goal is, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So. I, I totally think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things to support this. This isn't just like an opinion I have. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least uh, I have other anecdotes and other people that share this opinion. Like Jason Cohen, one of my favorite microhomp talks ever was Jason Cohen's talk about building the ideal bootstrap business. Mm-hmm. And he says his, he thinks the most important metric for new companies is ARPU, average revenue per user. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are, you, what are you charging people? Yeah. And in my experience, that's been very true as well. Cool. Sounds like it's going to be a good talk. Hopefully. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, I'm feeling better about it. This, this always happens with talks where, for me, where it's like, it feels big and amorphous and like, oh my God, like, is this the talk I'm going to do where it really, really sucks? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I start working on it and get some notes together and start like thinking of some talking points and like start rehearsing it. And I'm like, oh, actually this, this might be a decent talk. Yeah. So I'm, I'm starting to turn the corner a little bit and feeling, feeling good. Yeah. That's cool. I'm noodling around, um, submitting a, an attendee talk this year for consideration by the general populace. Uh, and I have a few ideas, nothing, nothing I'll speak about yet, but yeah, I think it's, that's a goal of mine this year is to try to get on stage. Nice. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Is you're talking to me about why, um, co-hosting a podcast is amazing for you. Hey, there we go. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> Just get up on the stage and say giant robots 50 times. <laughs> <laughs> Not self-promotional at all. Oh God, no. <laughs> so that's, that's me. Nice. What are you up to these days? Well, let's see. I'll give a quick update on my machine learning class. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Things are just starting to get hard. Like, <laughs> like it was difficult to start with, and now we're like on week five. And yeah, it's really starting to get tricky. But one of the cool takeaways so far is that it has really demystified like the concept of a neural network, for example. Like I, mm. when I would hear neural network, I'd be like, that's something extremely complicated. I'll probably never <laughs> be able to understand. And I'll leave that to PhDs and hardcore data scientists. And actually, it's it's a very simple concept. And it's kind of been a build up to it. So we started with the very with the most simple, like, linear regression learning algorithm, where you take some inputs, and you figure out some parameters, basically, to multiply each of the inputs by to produce a result that accurately predicts the 
actual value. So it's like basically a, a simple linear function and figuring out how to optimize and figure out those parameters, right? Mm-hmm. And so a neural network is, as you would expect, kind of modeled after how neurons work in the brain. Mm-hmm. And basically what neurons do is they take input and then they push some kind of output to other neurons. And then those other neurons take that input and push output. So it goes through any number of layers and can produce a more nuanced output than would be possible with just a simple linear equation. Mm. And do they like boost or reduce that signal as they as it goes to the neurons? Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. Right. And there are certain types of problems that are like, I won't go too deep into it because it's really technical, but like there are certain types of problems that are not able to be predicted accurately with a simple linear function. But when you put it through multiple layers, it's like kind of like logical redirection, like like you put something in and it's true here and then it goes down this other path and then maybe it becomes false in that path. Mm. Um, and so it's basically going through multiple layers. So like mathematically, it's not that complicated once you understand kind of how a basic learning algorithm works. And so that's been a cool experience just kind of demystifying the concept and this is the best i love that yeah yeah and now like i've read um stripe recently released um it's like built into their core product but it's called radar and it tries to predict when um someone's making a fraudulent charge through your account mm-hmm. and they put out a blog post or two about kind of the underpinnings of that and how they use machine learning to build their predictive algorithm and they're dropping all kinds of terminology in there and now i read through that article and it's like most of it makes sense based on what I've learned. So mm, that's nice. that's really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And the, the teacher made a remark like a week ago. He's like, I know this stuff seems complicated, but this is basically 90% of what, you know, Silicon Valley is using for machine learning. And anything beyond this is like kind of pushing beyond the boundaries of what some of the most innovative startups are using. So that's cool. And just like another fascination that I that I've had is, you know, when he was building up kind of the explanation for how a neural network works. He was explaining how it in many ways maps to, to the way the brain works. In some ways it doesn't. And like he was using some examples to explain just how the brain works. And, and one of the examples was how you can basically train a different body part to take in input data and start to interpret it. So like mm, mm-hmm. there's a really fascinating article that talks about someone did an experiment. They took a camera and they attached basically a, a pad of electrodes to it and they put it on some on a blind person's tongue and mm-hmm. that person started after like a couple of days started to interpret visual data based on electrical impulses coming through their tongue uh-huh is that fascinating Isn't that amazing <laughs> yeah it's, it's so cool and like neuroscientists really they don't really know why that's working or how it's working they just know that like the brain is managing to use a different a completely different part of the brain than the than the part that normally interprets visual data and it's recognizing these impulses are likely visual and it's starting to interpret it that way it's just yeah crazy fascinating i've heard some other like anecdotes around that like flight suits for pilots Mm -hmm. it's like if you're like a fighter pilot one of the hard things is like knowing what your orientation is like Mm -hmm. how the plane is oriented in space and so there are these suits that will like sort of vibrate in certain areas depending on how the plane is oriented mm-hmm. and like helping that helps improve your perception after not too long your brain just learns to like understand like oh if it's vibrating around my left leg i'm like this way yeah it's i think that's such an interesting thing or one of my favorite examples of this is this guy they put a belt on him with like a bunch of vibrating motors on it and so like whatever direction was north would always be vibrating continuously mm-hmm. and he found his sense of direction like improved like crazy over time yeah so that he like suddenly became aware of like how much roads like were non-direct between a and b and like 
he would be on vacation and be like, my house is back that way. And just like had these like this amazing new sense that his brain just like was like, okay, fine. I can, I can work that data in. That sounds great. It's so crazy. It just goes to show like we are pretty far off from actually like in some ways, artificial intelligence we're getting closer to, but other ways we just are like not even getting close to, to what the brain is actually able to process. Like, and the fact that basically there's a theory, uh, I think a neuroscience theory that the brain is actually just basically a bag of neurons and there are certain parts that are trained to process certain types of information like you have your visual cortex and your auditory cortex but experiments like the one with the tongue processing visual data seems to imply that any part of the brain can interpret any type of signal so Mm. maybe in the future someday someone will build a machine learning algorithm that can just take in any kind of input data and interpret it in in whatever way it needs and Mm. Just the fact that our brain can do that is like blowing my mind. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because to me, like the fact that neural networks, like the success of neural networks and the fact that it is modeled after the brain, it actually feels to me like we are getting close to the brain. Yeah. Where it's like we're just, we need more neurons and, you know, maybe some more subtlety in there, but like we've got the basic structure down. Yeah. And now it's, we just got to scale it. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating time. It is. You're intriguing me because I've been feeling more and more. It's like this is start, starting to feel like neural networks and, and that sort of thing are feeling more in, in machine learning like a core technology mm-hmm. that you might just need to know to do what we do Yeah, pretty soon. And so I feel like I might be, need to pay more attention to that and do some, do some digging. Yeah. I think at least like I feel like it's going to be good to have a base level of understanding. Like I'm still in theoretical territory in this class which i think i talked about this early on like i I know i'm gonna at some point i'm gonna want to start applying this because i don't like Mm -hmm. staying in theory land for too long um it becomes hard to stay with it if i'm still theoretical i'm not getting something tangible but i think at the end of this course we start getting into like image recognition and maybe even like a a problem of like taking two audio feeds and filtering one voice out from another or something like that Mm. using a simple Mm -hmm. learning algorithm so Mm. I'm uh, I'm looking forward Uh-oh, to Tom. Uh, yeah. the robots are coming for your job. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think this class will have some practical application, which will be fun to uh, fun to do. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more. Yeah. And then let's see. I I had one other topic I wanted to discuss around quality assurance. I guess. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll start with a short story. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, we shipped a bug. And it basically was a bug that made it past most of our defenses for catching these types of issues. And Mm -hmm. it potentially could have been a bad bug had it been applied in a different setting. Fortunately, it was we caught it relatively quickly and it didn't really do much damage. But it kind of has gotten me thinking about kind of our strategy in general for making sure that bad bugs don't slip into critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So this, specifically, this bug was around some large batch of work we needed to do in the background and potentially many thousands of units of work. And we had implemented this throttling algorithm that would say like if there's more than x number of jobs to process then automatically spread them out by a certain amount of time so that we don't put too much load on the system and the spreading algorithm had a bug in it where it was like off by a factor of 10 Mm -hmm. so it ended up spreading jobs out over days instead of hours Mm -hmm. and so interesting thing about this bug is there were there were unit tests it went through code review and yet it wasn't caught until it was actually in production. Yep. So this got me thinking about like, what is the best way to guard our 
critical infrastructure because we mostly ascribe to kind of the Facebook mantra of move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. But I think even Facebook would probably agree that there are certain parts that they cannot afford to be broken even for a minute. Right. So what it keeps coming back to me for me is like, do we need to go down the path of having dedicated QA people or do we need to add more process or do we just say like these things happen from time to time and we just do our best not to let them happen? Mm. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the last thing is going to be true. Yeah. Like unless we're talking like space shuttle code. Right. Um, that's that's just you're going to have to like we just have to accept that. That's mm-hmm. some of those things are going to slip through. Um, one thing that comes to mind is, do you have a staging environment that looks like production? We do, yeah. Okay. Did this code get tested against that environment? So I think it might have gotten tested against it, but the one thing that was missed was that it was code that only applied when the number of units of work crossed like a 1,000 or some kind of threshold. And I don't mm-hmm. think it was tested with more work that crossed that threshold. So it was it was tested when there was less work because that was an easier test case to produce. Yep. Um, but the high volume scenario wasn't reproduced in staging. So that that may be okay. you know part of the problem. But okay, so there there were like a, there was a path of this code that didn't get hit in right. in, in the testing, yeah. Yep. So one thing that we tend to I guess I would call as part of our standard process is for a story, let's say to be completed, mm-hmm. uh, we do acceptance on it mm-hmm. in staging. And then there's acceptance criteria. Uh, so it's like, to, here's how, you, here's how you, you test this out in staging. Got it. Build a test case this way. And if this code worked, you should see this. Is that something that is prescribed at the point of specking out the issue? Is it like a... Uh, no, it's, it's like, as, uh, like when you're delivering that story. Like if you're like, if I as a developer am saying this is done, um, I want someone else to verify that it actually is working. I see. And so here's how you accept this story, story for me. You go to the thing, type this in, make sure that the screen says this. So it's part of the process for the developer who's submitting the feature to say, here are the acceptance steps. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. I like that. That's that's what I was heading towards. If we didn't have a person solely dedicated to QA, then the step back from that was just to say, like, add something to our process where you know, we basically make a checklist for features similar, you know, basically an acceptance checklist. Yep. It takes more discipline. It's annoying. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm working on small things or when I'm working by myself, I will often skip this step. Mm-hmm. But for bigger hairy things or on teams, I think it's it's worth doing. And something I've found is that often when I went to test things in staging to like write up the acceptance criteria, I would discover that I had broken, like something was wrong. Yep. Like it worked on my machine, the test passed. But then when I did in staging, something didn't work. I'm like, wait a second. Oh, that plan doesn't exist normally or whatever. Yep. And also having someone else do it would reveal even more things because when you're working on a feature, you start to not notice things that might be broken, basically. Mm-hmm. Like I've, been, I've just been making sure that ABC happens, but I didn't even notice that D was broken over here. Mm-hmm. And someone with a fresh set of eyes is like, but hold on, it, it broke D on my machine. You're like, oh, right. So it's, it's annoying. It's, it's much more fun to just like ship it to production and be done with it right. as a developer. Yep. Um, but... I was surprised at how often that doing that explicit acceptance step caught issues. Yeah. So you essentially have another developer on the team. This is not like yep. a dedicated QA person. It's just another developer well, run acceptance. Yeah. Sometimes developers would do it, but um, ideally, like whoever the stakeholder is would do it. Yeah. It would depend on kind of what the thing is. Like if it's a purely like backend thing, it would, mm-hmm. it's impossible for like a client, for example, to do acceptance. Right. But for, for things that like you can verify on the UI, that's actually even better than you're like your the customer is like, yeah, I, I asked you to build X and then like you wrote me steps to verify you built X correctly. 
and we sort of have this nice like dialogue going back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I would like my only concern with that to like blanket that across the board as part of our process is that it would could potentially slow us down a bit, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like I want to be slowed down on things that are high risk, but things mm-hmm. that aren't high risk, I don't want to be slowed down on, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like the trick is figuring out how to bucket them into high risk versus not high risk and only impose the process on the high risk ones. Yeah, that's tricky. And I want I don't want it to be a decision making point because, you know, as the developer who's writing the thing, it, you know, if I feel pretty confident that this is not high risk, I understand what's going on here, which I'm sure I'm, I think the developer who wrote this obviously didn't expect to be shipping a bug, right? So he's yep. like, I, I totally got this. This algorithm makes sense to me. I have I wrote tests for it. I could see that developer deciding at that moment, like, this is not a high risk thing. I don't need to go through the normal acceptance process for this because I feel safe with it. But yep. When really that's something that should have. So I think something we started, I've started doing is like building up a list. Like anytime a feature touches this subsystem, consider it high risk. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But I want to get it down so that it doesn't require much thinking. You know, anytime we're building a feature, like it's pretty quick to scan through a list and determine whether it's high risk or not. I mean, that's my mm-hmm. ideal, I think. Yeah. I wonder if that's possible. Yeah. I don't know if it's foolproof. But, well, yeah, nothing, nothing is so yeah. so far. <laughs> it, I mean, it sounds nice to avoid those decisions, but it's beneficial for I, I would think to think about like, is this a thing that could use additional scrutiny, yeah. even though it looks simple or it doesn't touch a, a critical thing? I generally, when I'm working on a thing, I get a sense of like this kind of is a little hairy. It has a lot of moving parts. I could I could mess this up pretty easily. Yeah. So I don't think it would take a long time to to make a call on that. Like it's it doesn't seem like a huge overhead of asking people to decide like should this go through additional yeah. review. You're probably right. I'm curious. So you, this thing was off by a factor of ten in like how it's pushed back the jobs. Yeah. When you look at the code that was testing this, why didn't a test expose this issue? It's one of those tests that you look at it, and unless you've basically figured out the equation in your head and reasoned about it looking at the tests, it wouldn't be immediately obvious. Like there were some, there were some tests saying like, given this many jobs, it should spread them out by this much. And it was like something like a hundred thousand, maybe milliseconds. And uh-huh. so you're looking at this and you're like, unless you go through the process of, you're basically verifying the test in your head and figuring out the equation, you wouldn't know that that output is off by a factor of 10, like that it was supposed to be 10,000 instead of a hundred thousand. Hmm. I suspect that the test was developed in a way where the equation was written. I'm not sure if the developer actually figured out the expected result before running the tests, or if it was like, maybe they tried to compute it, ran the tests, the test produced like, it might have failed and said, here's the expected result. And then they looked at the result and said, yeah, that looks reasonable. Let's plug that into into the the test. test. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That that certainly could be. I I wonder if also like, it, it sounds like maybe the units were kind of odd like if you yeah. can't if you can't kind of eyeball or work it out fairly quickly for yourself then is that a good way of measuring the, what the delay should be yeah probably not i mean we are talking like fractions of a second so we're dealing in milliseconds and i don't know so you figured out like it should be spread out by 100 milliseconds and actually was a thousand yeah Just something like, like that yeah huh okay yeah i think the the verifying and staging sounds like the the thing that was would have been most likely to catch this yeah although setting up tricky validation scenarios is a pain. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes that can be a positive pressure yeah. where it's like, it's hard to test this with a thousand jobs, but we always have a thousand jobs in production. Let's make a script for generating a thousand jobs so right. we can test stuff. Right. 
Yeah, so I think I, it's good to hear that you guys do like the acceptance checklist. I hadn't put a name to it, but I feel like that's something that we're probably going to be more deliberate about doing. I mean, we often do it. It's not that we haven't that we don't verify things in staging before going to production. It's part of mm-hmm. our general process, but it's not something that is codified in our process. It's just kind of yep. like it's kind of a loose thing right now where we just kind of know like it is prudent to do this, but there's yep. not like a a written down process of like when when a feature is high risk, do this, you know. So Yeah. I think if you're concerned about correctness, then yeah, this is it's it's a worthwhile thing. Yeah. And, and just to be doubly clear, having another person do the acceptance, I think is it makes it even a little more annoying, but but worth the, yeah. the hassle. Yeah, I think we are the least likely to catch our own errors. <laughs> yep. And it, and in this case, if this person had written up like, do this thing, run this thing, and then you should see that the jobs are scheduled now by this much apart. Right. Like having to write out the acceptance criteria yourself kind of gives you like a quick check. And then like, I would always like run through it once myself on staging and be like, yeah. wait a second, they're actually 10x that. Right. So. And I think that's an important thing, too, is that the person who wrote the code is going to have the best understanding about how they expect it to work. So yeah. having that person write it out in the acceptance criteria, I think, is good, as opposed to just saying, like, here's this thing I wrote. Now, please go verify it and make sure that the jobs are spread out properly. Because yeah, right. then if as the person exactly. doing the accept- acceptance has to do all the math myself, I mean, that could take a lot longer than it normally would and and just be burdensome. So, yep. yeah. I like that. Cool. Well, I think uh, we've gone on long enough. We should wrap it up. All right. Today's show is edited and produced by Tomological Order Obarski. Very nice. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 229. Thanks for listening.